Thank you, Steve, for that introduction, uh, and Dr. Barker for your welcome. Uh, let me get myself sorted out here on the podium. Yeah, I was going to say um, that the accent comes from Northern Ireland. So um, I'm Northern Irish, uh, not English, but British, uh, if you see what I mean. So it's all a bit complicated. Um, but I think Canadians will probably find that easier to understand than most of my American friends as well. Uh, but there we are. Now, it's, it's great to be here uh, to represent Langham along with Steve uh, and to be back in Canada. I've got a brother who lives in Ottawa and uh, two nephews, one in Ottawa and one in, in Toronto here. Uh, so it's always, it always feels coming to some part of our home, at least part of our family home. Now, the topic, I hope, have you all got the, uh, the handout that was uh, available? It should be there. Uh, the topic that I've been asked to speak on is following Jesus in an era of political turbulence, which it certainly is, I think you'll agree. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the talk I'm about to give, with some tweaks and developments, was originally uh, asked of me exactly two years ago uh, in the wake of two of the somewhat turbulent events of 2016, namely the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States, uh, and in the same year, a little bit earlier, uh, the referendum in, in the United Kingdom for Brexit to, to, to leave the European Union, which was very unexpected and has introduced all kinds of complications into our political and social life as well. Um, and so I was asked to speak on this subject. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in an era where so many things, so many unexpected things seem to be happening and where the world appears in many respects to be getting more turbulent, more dangerous, uh, where some of the uh, currents of political change in many parts of the world, not just um, in the United States and Britain, uh, seem very, make many of us very anxious and worried. And I responded to the invitation in one way to say, if I'd been asked simply to speak about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, I'd have happily done that. If I'd been asked to speak on the political changes in the US and so on, I would have declined because normally I don't get involved uh, in speaking directly about issues of political change. I believe the Bible is very relevant to that, but I don't feel it's my place uh, to comment when I'm a guest in someone else's country necessarily on their political arrangements and choices. But to put the two together... Uh, to think about what does it mean to be a biblically literate Jesus follower and to think through some of those issues of world change and political change from a biblical perspective seemed to me to be what we have to do. Uh, and, and it felt to me almost that I could not, as it were, duck out of it because this ought to be what those of us who claim to be biblical experts or, or, or are lauded as such is not just to speak and expound the Bible for itself but to seek to discern as best we can what is God saying, what is the Holy Spirit saying through the scriptures into the contemporary world um, and that is often very uncomfortable uh, because it exposes some of the idolatries, as we shall see, of the contemporary world. But it is ultimately reassuring, because from the Bible we know the story we are in, and we know where the story will end, uh, and that gives us hope, uh, as we saw on the screen. Uh, but the way through that hope uh, can indeed be very disturbing. So I want us, therefore, to, to come to the Bible, uh, and you'll see that one of the first things that I want to share is how I discern, or I think I discern, the patterns of history 
particularly in the Old Testament, and I believe this is why God has given us, or one of the reasons why God has given us the Old Testament, is to show us how the rise and fall of nations in the international arena, uh, which we are seeing today in, in our culture, is no, no different from the way it was all through those centuries of the Old Testament. Indeed, I tend to see those stories of those empires that are there in the Bible as a repeating pattern under the sovereign governance of God uh, and the, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom writers all affirm that in that sequence of empires God rules, heaven rules as Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar that God is sovereign over the histories of nations and empires and cultures and rules them according to his own plan and purposes and also according to moral principles that he is as it were built in to the structure of the universe so the old testament affirms that God may raise up nations and empires to accomplish his purpose but when their arrogance and their violence or their depravity reach a certain level which becomes intolerable, then God acts in judgment um, and they either collapse or they sink to some level of insignificance or they depart from the historical scene altogether and we would never hear of them if it weren't for archaeological and historical records. So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, we find the great empire of Egypt the smaller empires of the Amorite nations in Canaan, Solomon's little empire, well, it was, he thought it was pretty big, but it, you know, in global terms, it was rather small. Uh, the Assyrian empire, of course, and then the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, all through biblical history. And I think, again, as I say, this to me is one reason, one answer to give to the question, why did the Old Testament take so long? Have you ever been asked that question? Why did God not send Jesus the day after Adam and Eve you know, uh, ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden and saved a lot of time and a lot of pain and heartache? And I think one of the reasons is that it is the space of those centuries of, those, of history in which God has made this point and showed us his sovereignty at work within history. Some of these empires, of course, were very short. The Babylonian Empire lasted about 70 years. Others were very long. The Roman Empire lasted somewhere close to 700 years, but none of them lasts forever, then or now. And when you look at the reasons why some of these nations in the end collapsed, it seems to be a combination of internal and external factors. Uh, some of which the Bible also shows us. Internally, there was often, you will see, the corrosive effects of, of moral depravity, of economic inequality, uh, resentment and violence, creating a kind of revolutionary atmosphere, uh, corruption and venality, and then external factors such as changing economic conditions or famine or climatic change uh, or stronger enemies that overcome from the outside and so on. But whatever the human factors, internal or external, the Bible always interprets that, that through those factors, mediated by those factors, the judgment of God is at work in those circumstances and realities. For all empires, the message seems to be, they all generate, they all emerge from, and they all depend upon a level of arrogance usually combined with some degree of ethnocentric pride and superiority, which is nothing new about that in today's world. And that sort of ethnocentric, arrogant pride, that hubris, 
is effectively satanic in its origin, of course. It goes right back uh, to the garden. But it's satanic in origin, but very human in its manifestation and is one of the quintessential marks of our fallenness. And because it is satanic and it's arrogant, it is abhorrent to God and ultimately self-destructive as God's righteous government of history works itself out. So when I think this way through the Bible and look at some of those marks of the rise and fall of empires, it has seemed to me for quite some time now, not just recently in, in the light of the events of 2016 or indeed of yesterday or Tuesday or whenever it was, but for quite some time, that there are signs of that kind of cultural and civilizational collapse and the seeds of it within Western culture, which could be described or seen to be the outworking of God's judgment on these later centuries especially of the great European, Euro-American, Western cultural project. And I'm including within that, not just Europe and Britain, but also uh, North America and where Westerners, Europeans, have exported themselves to over about the last 500 years, including, of course, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, South Africa and other parts of the world. Because it is about that length of time. Uh, about 500 years ago, the Europeans just decided to to go places, and nobody asked them. Uh, they were never invited. They didn't ask permission. They didn't need visas. Uh, they just went and colonized all over the place. And so they developed this enormous cultural project, aspects of which, of course, uh, had, as all human cultures had, those aspects of, of goodness and reflection of the image of God and things that were productive and positive but at the same time, many aspects that were ethnocentric and racist and oppressive. And it seems to me that uh, in these last few generations, you get the feeling that basically God is sort of saying, enough is enough. And this 500-year cycle is coming towards its end. The signs are there. Um, indeed, even just for a sort of trivial observation, because I do travel a fair bit, uh, and if you go to Asia uh, and travel on Asian airlines through Asian airports, and then you return to the West, uh, you know, the comparison can be quite stark uh, with the sort of the thrusting ambition, uh, the youthfulness. Uh, you go to Hong Kong and you see these hordes of, of children, you know, clean scrubbed in uniforms with their satchels, going to school, education matters. And then you come back to the sort of weary, dirty, dilapidated despair of the West, um, in my country at least, and you think, you know, what does the future belong to? Who is on the up and who is basically on the, on the collapse? Of course, it has been said um, that the, uh, basically the 19th century was dominated by the British Empire and the 20th century has certainly been dominated by the rise of the United States to global leadership, especially after the Second World War. Uh, and it seems pretty certain that the 21st century, our century, will be dominated by Asia and especially by China. In fact, I, I said that, and I was told later that uh, Richard Nixon had said that quite some time ago, um, and uh, well, there we go. So what is that going to mean for the West? What is God doing? I ask that as a question, not with an answer, but I say, what is God up to? Uh, that on the one hand, the Western civilization, which you could argue he has used in many positive ways, is on its decline. 
And the Chinese population and influence is rising very intentionally. There's no doubt that uh, the current Chinese government see their dominance of their region and indeed into Africa. They're now investing in 38 different African countries. They have a policy, the one belt, one road policy by land and by sea. Uh, so there's a very clear intentionality about their desire to become uh, a dominant world power. So what has God been up to that over the last 60 or so years he's been developing the Christian population in China to the point where there's now somewhere close to 100 million Chinese Christians within that vast country. Uh, what is God doing? Um, when we think back to the Roman Empire, uh, which was massively persecuting of the tiny little Christian yeast that was growing within it, uh, until eventually, over the centuries, that Christian reality in the Roman Empire overcame the Roman Empire itself. Of course, that wasn't always good news in terms of Christendom, but you, you see the point I'm making what is God doing as one civilization collapses and another arises? Now, I need to be very careful at this point. I'm not trying to say that they, that is, the Chinese in particular or the Asians in general, that they are more righteous than us, that somehow God is punishing us because we're so wicked and he's raising them up because they're so good. That is the kind of simplistic uh, binary um, evaluation that God said the Israelites were not to think in Deuteronomy 9. Do not think that it's because of your righteousness and the nation's wickedness that you are going in to take their land. It's not so simple as that. But what it does seem to me is that if we apply those biblical criteria that God has provided in the scriptures and especially in the Old Testament, then we can see, I believe, that there are marks in Western civilization in general of a spiral of decline which is looking increasingly terminal. Here are a few of the marks, just as they occur to me, uh, of this kind of slide into depravity and to see the marks of God's judgment. And these go back, really, I think, over at least two and a half centuries in, in the post-Enlightenment era, that there has been these centuries of de facto functional atheism in the public square. God has been uh, increasingly removed from anything that matters uh, in the political arena. He has reduced either to a slogan or to a flag in the chancel uh, or to words on the currency or whatever it might be. But in, for all practical purposes, God becomes irrelevant. We don't do God uh, as one of our um, British politicians said when he was asked the question if Tony Blair had prayed with George Bush and before Tony Blair could answer, uh, so we don't do God. In other words, that's not part of our agenda here. Or as, in, as Johnny Cash sang in one of his songs, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it, uh, which I think is quite perceptive. So functional atheism, but also, of course, this history of our culture, of our societies and their pro our prosperity, having been based on and still profiting from those centuries of genocide, of slavery, of colonialism, and all the current profit from weapons and wars uh, that we continue to invest in one way or another. There's also the increasing excessive inequality within our societies, the neglect of the poor, the accumulation of wealth, exactly the kind of things that the prophets condemned and indeed has accelerated since the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9, at least in, in my own country, in the UK, um, that inequality has got even worse. And of course, uh, we've been through the horrors of two world wars, 
in the 20th century, which is why we're wearing our poppies. But have we learned anything from them when we look at some of the developments in the world today and the kind of rhetoric that is being used, which in many people's uh, scared ears is reminiscent of the 1930s and the kind of thing that led to violence and war in the last century? Uh, and of course then there has been the whole sexual revolution going on since the 1960s uh, with such disastrous effects on the family uh, and on the social glue of our whole culture and generated enormous financial cost to the public purse. There's a, uh, an organisation in the UK called the Marriage Foundation which happens to have Christian origins but they, they seek to present themselves in the public arena in favour of marriage w without necessarily being very overtly Christian. But they have done a huge amount of research on the actual cost of family breakdown in the UK. That is the cost uh, in... in um, in terms of uh, t tax losses, in terms of childcare, in terms of uh, legal costs, of all the proceedings, costs of social benefits and so on for broken families, etc., etc., plus health costs within the uh, country. And it's come to something like £44 billion per annum, they estimate. Is, so they say this is a public health issue, not just a social issue. And then, of course, uh, there is the quite deliberate, sometimes accidental, but sometimes quite intentional raping of the environment, uh, of the natural world, of God's creation for greed and for gain, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, and then you come to the events of 2016. So it seems to me that uh, there is this kind of almost baffling, why is all this happening? And yet, to me, it's symptomatic of something, not just the reason for God's judgment, actually symptomatic of God's judgment already being at work. So as I think of those two things in 2016, in my own country, I ask myself the question, how does it come about, how did it happen that Britain swung so quickly from the atmosphere in London that we had during the London 2012 Olympics when Britain welcomed the world uh, and, and there was such a feeling of joy and you know, uh, multiple cultural joy and internationalism on the streets of London. How does it happen we switched so quickly from that to the kind of toxic xenophobic, racist hatred that sort of overflowed during and after the Brexit campaign and has so poisoned our politics since. How has it happened that in the United States, south of here, they swung so quickly from electing their first African-American president and giving him two terms to electing one that on endorsement was endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan, even though it was repudiated fairly quickly. How does the, these sort of swings happen so quickly? And so I turn back to my Bible, back to my Old Testament, and it seems to me that as we try to interpret these questions biblically, my mind cannot help but going back to the book of Judges. Because there also in that book, we see a story of increasing fragmentation with violence social decline, tribal warfare, civil wars, and acts of increasing sexual violence and depravity, and even mass murders. And you say, who are these people, these people of Israel? How could it happen then that a nation which had been blessed by God with deliverance from persecution 
uh, in, in Egypt, which they celebrated annually in their great Thanksgiving feast of the Passover, gifted with a fertile land of their own, established on the basis of a constitution that God gave them in the law, particularly the book of Deuteronomy, how could a, a nation with so many, we might say, privileges and benefits that the early people of Israel had, how could they fall into such dysfunctional disintegration over a few generations? And yet they did. And as the Apostle Paul says, these things were written for our learning. The question is whether we are, in fact, learning anything from all this. So moving on to the second main heading on your sheet, the Bible and the political arena, it seems to me that we ought to ask, what does the Bible tell us about God's desire for political life? How did God seek to, as it were, guide and help Israel uh, to a form of political life that would have some stability uh, rather than constant turbulence that it later fell into? And I just want to make three points here. You can see them on the screen. Uh, that the Bible reveals the standards that God expects from government. Uh, that's very strong in the Old Testament. The Bible also exposes the kind of idolatry that leads society down a very dangerous and disintegrating road. And also the Bible, especially the Old Testament, uh, reveals the judgment that God operates within history and says, look, this is what happens when you do this. This will happen. And it is, at one level, uh, humanly inevitable because that's the way it goes, but it is also the operation of God's judgment. So those, those three things um, as we move on. So first of all, the Bible reveals standards that God requires of government. Uh, and here we could spend the whole of the rest of the time simply looking at some of the texts, uh, especially in the Torah. But uh, the first is that God wanted government to have a kind of institutional modesty. Uh, that's to say, when you do have a king, he says in Deuteronomy 17, if you choose to have a king, you don't have to have one, but if you decide to have one, then he must not be like all the other nations around where they knew what the kings of Egypt and Babylon were like. No, you mustn't go like that. He must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, that's weaponry, uh, or make himself go back to Egypt to get more of them. He must not take many wives, so he shouldn't have a harem like the great Mesopotamian uh, emperors. Uh, and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold for himself. In other words, to put it uh, kind of crudely, the king in Israel was not to go in for horses, harems and hoarding, or weapons, women and wealth, or guns and girls and greed. You know, I mean, uh, we, we can put it in whatever way we want. But God is saying that that's the way the world's powerful people operate. Uh, and Israel's king is not to be like that. Uh, they are to follow different standards, uh, the standard of, uh, of modesty and humility. The Israelite king was not to be a super-Israelite, but to be a model Israelite, uh, to obey God's law, to be subject to God's law, uh, and not to turn from the right or left. He is to set an example to the people uh, of that. And then secondly, there's the political principle of accountability, uh, or integrity in public office. Uh, plenty about that in the law in general, but I, I like the example of Samuel because it is, it's, it's a wonderful moment of public audited accountability. Uh, here is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12 where Samuel is coming to the end of his leadership uh, and he says to the people, I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand 
Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I will make it right. So he opens the books and says, you know, here here are my returns. Here's my audit. Here's my accountability. Uh, He says, I have not, in a sense, I've not um, profited from public office and I've not corrupted my public office, is what he's effectively saying. Uh, And they all say, no, you haven't. You haven't cheated. You haven't oppressed. You haven't taken anything. And then Samuel says, the Lord is my witness and you are my witness, uh, he's saying. So there's this this sense that... uh, those in public office are called upon uh, not to make profit from being in public office and not to betray the trust of the people by corruption. Again, we think of our current leaders um, around the world and it's a far cry from that standard. And then thirdly, uh, and perhaps not least, but actually climactically, it is the function of government to do justice. And here, I, you know, you could go to dozens and dozens of passages in the Old Testament which speak that language of the responsibility of all those in public authority, whether judicial, as judges, or as kings, or indeed within the religious establishment as priests, to be those who do justice, not just in the sense of crime and punishment, uh, you know, the justice is if you do the crime, you, you spend the time, you know, just people should get what they deserve, but justice in the broader sense uh, of seeking balance and equity within society and avoiding extremes of poverty and standing up for those who are in various kinds of need. One of my favorite verses is the words of King Lemuel's mother in Proverbs 31. We all know Proverbs 31 as the model wife. Um, but the interesting bit is we don't even know who King Lemuel was. He wasn't, he wasn't an Israelite king, um, but he had a very wise mother, whoever he was and whoever she was, and he tells him how to be king. Uh, and apart from other things, he mustn't get drunk and he mustn't go after women, but he then says, and this, she says, this is the positive bit in verse 8, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and needy. In other words, God's criterion for effective and godly government is the extent to which those who have power exercise their power on behalf of those who haven't, uh, who are powerless. Uh, and uh, that includes, of course, not just the poor and the needy, but in other Old Testament laws, the, the rights of the immigrant and the foreigner and the refugee. So God sets the standards, but then secondly, the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, exposes the idols that God rejects. Uh, if you have um, read the Mission of God book, you'll know that I have a whole chapter in there on what is idolatry in the Old Testament. How do we see these other gods? Uh, It's much neglected, I think, both theologically and in missiology. Uh, But to me, um, one reason for the slowly accelerating collapse of Western civilization in general, uh, and particularly, I would say, um, in, in this part of the world and in Britain, is the profoundly idolatrous and syncretistic nature of Western Christianity. Uh, not just other religions. I mean, we, we, of course, we can, we can talk about you know, false gods and other gods and the gods that other people worship. But within, just as within Israel, 
The prophets spend far more time pointing out the syncretistic idolatry of the Israelites, the people of God, who were mixing their claimed worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all the other gods, the Baals and so on, of the people around them. They were claiming to be the people of God, but they were living according to the gods uh, of the culture they lived in. And it seems to me we've been doing that too um, in, in the West for a long, long time. Uh, It's one reason why in the book of Deuteronomy, God warns them about that. He says, when you go into that land uh, and and you're there and the Canaanites are there, make sure that you do not be enticed by the gods that the other people worship because they will draw you away uh, and you will end up ultimately in slavery. So God's people then are to be different, not to go after the gods of Egypt. In Leviticus 18, you shall not do as they do in Egypt, where they worship the gods of empire and power represented by the Pharaoh and the gods of glory and might and splendor and arrogance. And you shall not do like they do in Canaan, where they worship the gods of fertility and sex and wealth and prosperity, Baal, who was the god of everything that sort of mattered business and sex and everything else. And God says, you're not to be like that. Rather, you must worship me. So what are the idols that the Old Testament puts its finger on, which we still see alive and well and functioning in our Western world? Again, I just mentioned three. One is obviously the idol of prosperity or mammon, to use the New Testament word. Baal was the god of sex, fertility, human, animal, crops, business, money, land, And so the Israelites were so tempted to say, well, Yahweh is our God on the Sabbath day. He's a great God to have for battles uh, and for three weeks holiday per year at the great festivals. So of course we'll keep Yahweh, uh, but for everyday life, really to succeed, you have to go in with the gods of the land. And so they mixed Baal with Yahweh. And it seems to me we do exactly the same in Western culture uh, with the God of mammon and greed. And then there's the idol of national pride, the kind of ethnocentric way in which a state will seek to use God for the sake of its own protection or its own um, popularity or splendor. The, The best example, I think, of that is Jeroboam, the Jeroboam who led the northern tribes away from the oppression of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Remember the story there uh, in 1 Kings 12? It's a very interesting story because Jeroboam appears at first sight to be a kind of Moses figure. Um, He's standing up to Solomon and Solomon's son Rehoboam who are kind of pharaoh figures. They're being oppressive. They're exploiting the people and they're claiming, they're asking to be released from that just as the Israelites asked to be released from Egypt and Rehoboam refuses. Jeroboam leads the 10 tribes off into rebellion but then he creates a whole surrogate religion. Uh, He establishes shrines in Dan and Bethel uh, and he tells tells the Israelites, here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. It's a replay of the great apostasy at Sinai, of the golden calf. Uh, And and they become, as it were, the, the places of the national cult of the northern kingdom of Israel. So when Amos protests against that, a couple of hundred years later, the high priest in Bethel says, don't you know that this is the king's sanctuary uh, and the temple of the kingdom? Uh, not the Lord's sanctuary, the temple of the Lord, but it has become, as it were, a sort of flag-waving um, uh, national patriotic religion in which God serves the state rather than the nation serving God. Uh, and that also seems to me to be a very modern thing uh, indeed. 
Um, we go to the later kings of Israel and you find that they idolize the gods of Assyria. They actually brought the gods of Assyria into the temple. Now, why would they do that? Because they were, as it were, enamored and enticed by the apparent success of Assyria. Uh, Assyria was great. Assyria was powerful. They were smart. So if you want to make Israel great again, you've got to get with the Assyrian gods and get them in. And so the whole religious cult becomes linked to the idolatry of national pride. And then there's the idol of self-exaltation, which of course can be individual and personal. It goes right back to the story of the fall, to the Garden of Eden, when we choose our own self-worth and self-opinion. I will choose what is right or wrong and good and evil and so on, above the authority of our creator. Uh, And that generates pride and one of the seven deadly sins, the idolatry of self But that can then infect a whole culture uh, and and, and a whole zeitgeist. It can become the air we breathe, you know, that you have to assert yourself, fulfill yourself. Uh, And so some positive good things, like being, you know, self-reliant and growing up and being mature and adult and independent, etc., can morph over into the vice of self-worship and narcissism. Uh, and that kind of self-exalting, self-defending, self-entitled kind of arrogance that easily becomes part of our culture. The prophets saw right through that also. Um, Here's a a passage from Isaiah uh, chapter 2 where he talks about what Israel had become like in his day. He says, their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures, all the wealth you want. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. They're very well weaponized. And their land is full of idols and they bow down to the work of their hands and what their fingers have made, the idolatry that goes along with those two things. And then God says, so the people will be brought low and everyone will be humbled because God rejects that kind of self-exalting arrogance. Ezekiel saw it also uh, in what he says about um, the king of Tyre and the the king of Egypt. Uh, here's, Here's how he put it. I thought I'd marked that in my Bible. I must have just quite not got round to that. Uh, Now here we are, Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, God says about the king of Tyre, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit in the throne of a God, but you are a mere mortal. You are not a God, even though you think you're as wise as a God. But by your wisdom and understanding, you've gained wealth for yourself. You've amassed gold and silver in your treasures. And by your great trading, you've increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has become proud. So there's that self-exalting arrogance that comes there with the king of Tyre. And similarly, the king of Egypt, God says, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying uh, among your streams. You say, the Nile belongs to me. I made it for myself. And what a ridiculous claim. Uh, He's actually claiming to be the source of the prosperity of his own nation, namely the River Nile. So that's the kind of, those are some of the idols uh, that we see exposed in the Old Testament. God sets the standards and he exposes the idols. And you can see that the whole story of Israel through those centuries is a story of one long struggle between Yahweh, the living God, the creator, the redeemer, the holy, just, true, and uh, merciful God on the one hand, and the idols on the other that constantly threatened and tempted Israel to go astray. Idols that I see still lurking within and in many cases now coming to dominate 
our Western politics. So the Bible reveals the standards, exposes the idols, but it does more than that. It also warns us of the terrible price that such idolatry will cost in the end. So that's the third point, that the Bible discerns the judgment that God operates within history. Because the book of Judges portrays this downward spiral as repeated idolatry results in national decline, fragmentation, violence, and anarchy. And at the end of the book, of course, as you know, several times, it says that everyone did what is right in his own eyes, quotes, there was no king in Israel. And that's quite a subtle statement because on the one hand, it it probably has this sense that they were rejecting and neglecting the one who was the true king of Israel, namely the Lord himself. Uh, And they, you know, they had in a sense lost touch with their true king. But of course, it's also hinting at the fact uh, that there's this sense, well, if only they had a king, then all this anarchy of the judges could be ended because we'd have a really strong leader. Uh, And that, of course, is what comes along in the next book, uh, and and it's, it's a very natural progression, and we're seeing it today, that when society begins to collapse and fall apart, people long for strong leadership. And so we end up uh, getting leaders in our modern world, uh, in so many parts of the world now, who are precisely the strong man figure, whether it's Duterte in the Philippines, or Erdogan in Turkey, or now Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, and, and others, one might mention, uh, who... who you know, who, who are looked to, as it were, to solve the problems. And so when you get into the book of, uh, of Samuel and Kings, um, will the king solve the problem? Well, we start with Saul, pretty shaky start, and then it gets a bit better with David and Solomon, but then within a generation, even under Solomon himself, the cycle begins to repeat, uh, and you find the kings breaking all the standards that God required and going after all the idols that God rejected and then reaping the judgments that God decreed and threatened and did do through Samuel. And so you find in the Old Testament story, again, these symptoms of uh, societal collapse. You find increasing economic disparity accumulating uh, through with wealth accumulating in fewer and fewer hands and the multitudes of ordinary people being reduced to destitution and homelessness, as we read in Isaiah and Micah. In fact, Micah calls it social cannibalism. He says, they are devouring, they're tearing the flesh off my people and eating them. It's a very vivid metaphor there in Micah. There's the corruption of the political system itself with government favours and patronage and nepotism that one Samuel talked about, warned them about in chapter 8. There's the corruption of the judicial system because the the courts now become controlled by the wealthy and the politically powerful uh, along with all the corruption and bribery that went with it. So the courts become a tool of the powerful. You get an increase in violence and bloodshed and indeed not just violent crime in general but political murders uh, in Isaiah 1 and in Jeremiah. You get widespread sexual promiscuity religiously sanctioned and justified um, that Hosea refers to. You get a whole culture of lies and denial. Read Jeremiah chapter 2 and and he points out how not only are are the people unable to see what they're saying because they deny one thing and then they affirm it somewhere else. You you look at what they say and it's contradictory. It's very interesting. Uh, But also he says, are they ashamed of their lies? No, they've forgotten how to blush. 
they aren't even aware of the difference between truth and falsehood. They've just lost that. That's Jeremiah chapter two. And so you end up with a kind of paralysis of government, which happens towards the end of the monarchy under the reign of Zedekiah, in which you have the pro-Babylonian and the anti-Babylonian parties, it seems, at loggerheads with each other, and Zedekiah vacillating between the two, until in the end, Nebuchadnezzar has enough and comes and destroys the place altogether. And so here you've got these, all these factors in the collapse of the people of Israel, and it's all linked to this reality of idolatry. When you worship false gods, this is what happens. Until in the end, after centuries of prophetic warning and divine patience, God gives them up to the inevitable operation of his moral judgments and the nation collapsed. They were corroded from within, they were attacked from without and they went into virtual extinction in exile. In fact, it would have been extinction, the end, if it had not been for the grace of God and God's mission and God's promise to Abraham. So the point I'm trying to make here is this. The Old Testament cycle of idolatry leading to social dissolution, leading to God's judgment, Paul says, these things are written for our learning. Now, at one level, of course, they were unique. This was the people of Israel, God's unique people. But in another sense, they are paradigmatic because Israel, in a sense, is the story of humanity. They were a nation among the nations, and in the end they suffered the fate of the nations as God said they would. And that's how the Apostle Paul, it seems to me, is interpreting the human predicament in Romans chapter 1, because he draws very heavily on Old Testament scriptures, not only in his theology of salvation, but also in his theology of sin. And this is what he says will happen. He says, as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them up to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then he lists all the factors of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, gossip, slander, etc., etc., uh, and, and, and this is very Old Testament language. That God gives up and says, well, if that's what you want to worship, you can have it. In the end, when you submit to the idols, as Western culture has been doing now for about 250 years, the idols eventually come to rule over you. And I think that that is actually what recent events have been showing that we actually have the idols come to rule, literally on two legs. All the idols of wealth and sex and lies, etc., are now, as it were, dominating and ruling. Uh, it's sometimes said, isn't it, you get the politicians you deserve, but you also get the gods you worship, and sometimes there's not much difference. It's as if God says, all right, then here is your king, O Israel. This is what you asked for. This is what you get. And God's judgment works itself out in that way. So, more briefly, in the last few minutes before we, um, if we have time for some questions or comments, what then does following Jesus mean in the midst of that analysis, if that analysis has any kind of uh, biblical authenticity? And let me just make the five points that are on your paper. First of all, it seems to me that as those who are followers of Jesus in the midst of all this, as we discern it, we must remain kingdom people. That is that we are submitted to the reign of God, that there is the gospel of the good news, the good news was the good news, that Jesus is Lord and that God reigns. 
as the Psalms had been saying, and that Jesus announced the arrival of that kingdom of God in and with himself. And so the call to discipleship was fundamentally a challenge to accept and submit to God's reign and to live your life under God's reign, uh, as John the Baptist said, as Jesus preached and so on, which therefore was a radically different way from two options that were available to the, the, the Israelites at that time. On the one hand, the collusion with political power and wealth of Rome, uh, as the Sadducees did. We could call that the kind of right-wing option. Or, on the other hand, the radical alternative of a kind of religiously revolutionary, zealot sort of left-wing option. And instead, Jesus says, no, we must practice the values of the kingdom of God as Jesus himself modeled them. Uh, the values of forgiveness, of debt cancellation, of table fellowship with the outcasts, of turning the other cheek, of generosity to the poor, of welcoming the outsider, of loving the enemy. All of those aspects of living in God's kingdom are what it means to be a follower of Jesus, even in the midst of a world like we have today. So it means somehow helping Christians to recognize the difference between the kingdom of God as taught and modelled by Jesus, and the Christendom way of thinking, in which it is assumed that the best way to save the world is to rule the world and impose our religion on it, and to have a kind of position of privilege, and then to demonise and persecute everybody else. That sort of unholy alliance between the Christian cause and, quote, secular state power. Uh, and not say that there isn't a proper place for Christians to be involved in seeking to be salt and light within the political arena and to use all possible democratic means uh, to do what is right and godly and just and fair and morally true. But when we declare that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, we are acknowledging that we are called to follow Jesus of the cross and not Jesus of Constantine. Uh, that we need to re-examine the way in which we link together or the way we think through the issue of the kingdom of God in relation to the kingdoms of this world and submit our loyalties, our political loyalties, our economic loyalties and so on to the evaluation and the assessment of that. And then secondly, we must be Bible people living by and living within the story of God. Of course, most of us, I'm sure, would claim to be Bible Christians already, sort of definitional of being evangelical. But what do we think the Bible actually is? Uh, many, how can I put it, average, ordinary, we're all average, ordinary Christians, but you know what I mean, um, in, in churches. Uh, the Bible has become just a book full of promises, nice, blessed thoughts for every day, stick them on a calendar, tear one off. Or a book full of doctrines, if you're more systematically minded. You know, the Bible is basically systematic theology that got accidentally jumbled up and we need to resort it um, (laughs) and so on. Uh, Or the Bible is just a book of rules. You know, you just do what it says. You know, the Bible says it, I believe it, I'll do it and so on. But that's not what the Bible is, although there's plenty of promises and rules and doctrines in the Bible. But basically, God has given a story, this narrative from creation to new creation, uh, with the story of the creation, of the fall, of the promise to Abraham, of God's purpose for the nations, and the gospel centered on Jesus, and his cross and resurrection and ascension, and his now government of the world, and the mission of the church, and then the return of Christ in the new creation. And the question is, are we living in that story and by those values. It seems to me that a lot of Christians have simply lost the plot. 
That is, they've lost the biblical plot. They don't know the story we're in. Uh, we're called, yes, we have to live in the world, but we are not living by the world's story, whatever that happens to be. These days, there isn't much story to it at all. Uh, but we live by God's story. Like Daniel, living in Babylon, but with his windows open to Jerusalem. Not, I think, nostalgically, but he was living in, ba in Babylon and allowing, as it were, the values of the kingdom of God in the destroyed temple and the derelict city to invade his life and to govern the course of his politics as he served the government. Thirdly, we must be contrast people, shining the light of God. If we're going to be biblical people living by God's story, then we're going to have to be different, to be salt and light. And that's a big challenge and a big thing these days. In some ways, of course, it is becoming easier because as society becomes more and more rotten, um, Christians who choose to live by the standards of God will become more and more different. Um, and that may be costly, as it already is, uh, when you actually resist some of the pressures of our culture when they become legally uh, enforced, then we are sometimes forced to ask, has the time come for civil disobedience? Do we actually have to learn from Christians in the Roman Empire and Christians in, under Pharaoh, not Christians under Pharaoh, but the two midwives under Pharaoh and the apostles in Jerusalem and others who have to say, whether it is right to obey God or man, you must choose, but we cannot do other than to obey God. And as to obey God, we have to disobey you. Uh, in other words, there has to be something of the salt and light that we are within the culture that has become so um, unchristian, so-called post-truth culture, the, uh, the, the constant lying, the false hopes, the demonizing, the blaming, all of that. There's a great deal, I think, of spiritual powers at work in that. And we wrestle not just with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual powers. And so we have to be different. We have to be light of the world. As Jesus said, probably quoting from Isaiah 58, that great passage which said that if you will care for the poor and release the oppressed and clothe the naked and feed the hungry, then your light will shine forth and your righteousness will be visible. Uh, so there is an ethical challenge as well, uh, and I need to spin on a little bit faster. But because fourthly, we need to be gospel people. Uh, so not just uh, kingdom and Bible and different, but also committed to the mission of God. The mission goes on. Uh, just because the world goes astray doesn't mean that we back off and become paralyzed. We are sent into the world, as Jesus put it, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And so that uh, affirmation in the great commission of Jesus that all authority and power is given to him, so he is the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth, uh, and therefore wherever we are on this planet, we are standing on Christ's property and Christ's territory. And so we go with the authority and the mission of God himself, of Christ himself, and therefore we carry out our mission uh, of building the church, of serving society, of exercising our vocation within creation through the godly use and responsible care for God's creation. All of those aspects of being God's people, uh, a missional church, it's not just a slogan, it's actually a way of life. It's what the church is and ought to be. So even in the midst of political chaos and change and turbulence, our mission goes on. And then finally, we must be a praying people, appealing to the throne of God. We must be people of prayer, as Jesus himself was, and as he taught his disciples to pray. Um, that's amazing. When, when they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, it wasn't because they had never prayed before. 
Jesus came to a praying people. They prayed every day. They prayed before they put food in their mouths. You know, they prayed the Psalms every Sabbath in the, in the synagogue and so on. But teach us to pray as you do, uh, with this uh, familiarity with Abba, Father. And so Jesus taught them the Lord's Prayer, which we repeat so often. Uh, and, and prayer, of course, is a political act because prayer appeals to a higher throne than any president or prime minister or king or pharaoh or government or emperor. Uh, it is saying there is a higher throne, and that's exactly what Daniel, of course, uh, eventually got Nebuchadnezzar to accept, that he is the lord of the rulers of the earth. Prayer recognizes the sovereignty of God over the political arena and then lives and prays accordingly. So we pray to God in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven, which is an astonishing prayer. And I wonder if we ever really know it and believe it, that we're actually asking that the rule of God and the will of God should operate not just up in heaven, but on earth. And if we begin to understand and mean that, do we act in relation to it and seek to bring uh, the scriptures into contact and discover what God's will is in relation to the political and economic social life of our country and our workplace and everything else, and then pray those values into it. So that's why Paul says, doesn't he, in 1 Timothy 2, I urge then that, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Paul commands us to be praying, but what kind of prayer? Do we just pray, Lord, bless them, you know, and uh, make them do wise things and send them as if? So, you know. um, Christian prayer, I find anyway, in church, whenever it does touch the arena of our governments, is often so bland and lacking in any precision or any discernment. Recently, I was reading again through the book of Psalms, and I was struck by those first 10 Psalms, how relentlessly political they are. Uh, here is prayer in relation to the whole realm of political evil. He prays that God would put down the wicked and the powerful and those who uh, are oppressing others and that God would vindicate the oppressed uh, and, and bring them salvation. Here's the sort of thing he prays. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. He boasts about the craving of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. His ways are always prosperous, and your laws are rejected by him. And he sneers at all his enemies, and he says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no evil will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats, and trouble and evil are under his tongue. So arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God and say to himself, God won't call me to account? But you, God, you see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief. So break the arm of the wicked man and call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that otherwise would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. It comes to an end. Now, do we ever pray like that? I, I struggle to know whether I do, but it seems to me that there is a proper place for both praying for our rulers, 
Of course we should. They're human beings. They're sinners. They need God's love and God's grace. We should pray for them to come into meaningful contact with the gospel and repent and be changed and saved. But I think there's also a proper place for praying against our rulers when their policies and their decisions are manifestly out of line with what the Bible teaches as God's standards and God's values. And I do remember that, and still do, that within Britain at the moment, and for these last approximately eight to ten years, I have prayed that God would humble our then Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, because after the last election they spoke and they acted with such apparent, almost smirking triumphalism, while continuing with policies which were clearly hurting the poor and favouring the rich and have been increasingly exposed as doing so. And so I prayed for them, Lord, it would be wonderful if they could come and hear the gospel and be saved. Yes, but I also pray against those policies and pray that God would somehow vindicate uh, that which is righteous and put down and obstruct and hinder that which is wicked. Do we pray like that? Well, I've said enough, so I want to finish. Uh, but I want to finish with two sort of poems, um, although, well, I don't know whether they really are poetry or not. One of them is with Leonard Cohen. Now, I know he's, he was a Canadian Jewish poet and singer, and I don't know what you think of his songs. Some of them are pretty vile. But there was a certain prophetic element to some of his poetry, and here's what he wrote in the song The Future 25 years ago, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Empire, and it's a song called The Future, and it's, it's pretty lurid uh, and horrible, but the chorus, the repeated refrain is, things are going to slide, slide in all directions. There won't be nothing, nothing you can measure anymore. The blizzard, the blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it's overcome the order of the soul. And when they said, repent, repent, I wonder what they meant. And to me, that, those are haunting words, quite prophetic. What can repentance mean in a world of post-truth, fake news, contradictions, denials, denials of denials, confusion of morals and boasting approval of things that we all deplore? Repent? I sometimes wonder what they meant. But in such a world, in that world, we are still called to be followers of the crucified Lord and to lift up his cross and to bear witness to him and the good news that he taught and modelled and accomplished. Because the point is that we are to lift up the cross precisely in this world, in such a world, because that's where Jesus died and rose again. And so I finish with a, a reflection by George MacLeod, who was the founder of the Iona community, and I find it very moving and quite powerful. He says this, and this is my closing. He says, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. Because that is where he died. And that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's people ought to be. And that's what church people ought to be about. And that's where I'll finish. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Well, on behalf of us all, Chris, thank you. And uh, that has given us so much to, uh, to meditate about, to think on. Um, let me just say, um, Dr. Barker, where are you? Yeah. Um, how much time do we have for Q&A? Five minutes, I think. Seven minutes. All right. Okay. At the moment, yeah. Okay. So, yes, um, any, it doesn't have to be a question. It could be a comment or uh, an agreement or a disagreement, if you wish. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to touch on the uh, argument that can be made that uh, the fall of empires, of nations, of kingdoms can be attributed to God's judgment, God's wrath. Um, specifically here in Canada, North America, there was civilization here mm -hmm. uh, before the Europeans colonized. Yes. Uh, and with this mass movement of people from Europe to the Americas, we see a decline of many great nations, great empires. And I'm not saying that they are innocent no. or, uh, or that they are uh, immune to, mm. the, to the judgment of God, even mm. the God that they do not know the name of yet. But isn't it a dangerous notion to assume mm. that God's uh, judgment is what brings nations down? It could be, especially if it's accompanied by a self-justifying assumption that, you know, we're okay because we're the righteous ones, which, of course, is what God warned the Israelites about. Um, you mentioned the fall, and I think we, don't, we know something about the pre-European civilizations of the Americas, North and South and Central. Um, and, and what we know is, is wonderful because all human civilizations have cultural splendor of architecture and building and everything else. And all civilizations have horrors as well. And we also know that um, from archaeology that you know, some of those ancient civilizations also enslaved and sold into slaves, those who were less than them, uh, and engaged in child sacrifice, etc. So um, I can't answer your question with any sort of specificity, but I, and I wouldn't want to say that that God brought these wonderful Christian Europeans to this continent in order to bring judgment on the indigenous native peoples. I think that would be too simplistic a use, let's say, of the book of Joshua, even though we know uh, that, there, that such kind of justifications were used in the Americas and in Australia for, and in South Africa for the elimination of native populations, that they are Canaanites and we're the Israelites and we're God's people. And that, I think, is a, is a very horrible... Um, bad hermeneutic of the book of Joshua. But I don't, I think it would be perhaps clearer to say that what I'm trying to argue is that God has built certain moral principles into human life such that uh, when not just individuals, but when whole cultures and whole communities choose to go in certain directions, including things like injustice and oppression of the poor, sexual immorality um, and um, you know, promiscuity and so on. In the end, God is, is where it, God doesn't have to simply send down thunderbolts and you know smash into such. Society. There is a self-destruct element within human fallen nature, um, which, when you continue down these roads, the judgment of God operates by God giving us up to what we've actually chosen. That seems to be the way Paul's putting it. Uh, and so, therefore, I, I would want to say, in, in the case of the West, that some aspects of our society, including family breakup and sexual immorality and, and all those things, 
are not so much the sins for which God is judging us as they are the social outcomes of sins that we're already doing and that God is, in a sense, giving us up to and say, if this is the way you want to live, well, here's the consequences. This is what's going to happen. And God's judgment operates in that way, not necessarily through God sending enemies to conquer, as he sometimes did, uh, but not necessarily. But thank you. It's a, it's a perceptive question. It's a difficult one to get our heads around. But I still want to affirm, I think the Bible does affirm, God's overarching sovereignty in the international affairs of the human race. Um, that, I think, is clearly there. Perhaps one more. Good. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming, Dr. Ray. It's an honor to your heritage. Now, my question has to do with um, political participation and our duty as Christians to mm-hmm. participate in the political process. In biblical times, democracy was not around. They just inherited yeah. good and bad in every we have an opportunity to participate in the selection of our government. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is our duty in terms of voting? Mm-hmm. And what do we do when we come across a situation where you're referring to um, economic issues, mm-hmm. uh, compassion for the poor in one party, which you can vote, yeah. you guys have got it right. And, but when it comes to rights for the unborn, yeah. totally, uh, I know. Yeah. And there's this other party over here that's Hugely difficult. I entirely accept that problem. Um, And I know that it is especially burdensome south of the border um, in the very polarized politics in the US. And I have no simple answer, but I do feel that as Christians, we have a responsibility when we can to exercise political participation um, and to do it to the best of our ability with our consciences and with the Bible to weigh up the options of what we think is either the lesser evil or the greater good in terms of what the Bible says about the quote, so-called moral issues. Um, and you're quite right, it's very difficult when you have one party that advocates something you really do want to see happening, but they advocate other things that you don't want to happen, and vice versa, um, to know, well, which should I vote for? The, the challenge to me is that as Christians... Um, we don't have an option simply to back off and do nothing because that, I think, would be to hide our heads in the sand. And particularly, we don't have that freedom knowing that there are so many of our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who would long to have the freedom to be able to influence their government or to have any sort of political voice, uh, but who are oppressed and excluded and marginalized and persecuted. And the idea, for example, that they could get uh, a conservative judge into the Supreme Court who would favor Christians is just way beyond any imagination sort of thing. Um, And yet they are there seeking also to be salt and light in society and to preach the word and to transform society from below as the earliest Christians did within the Roman Empire when, as you say, they had no opportunity. And I suppose one could argue that democracy in the West, as it has developed, uh, is in in some sense in partly a fruit of the gospel because it in part reflects certain convictions about the nature of what it means to be human, uh, that human beings are basically equal, that there's a dignity about being human, and so the development of democracy reflects some values that are actually intrinsic to the Bible, which is why I think even more so that as Christians we should seek to protect democracy. Uh, We should seek to be advocating for those 
organs within society which seek to expose falsehood and find the truth, such as the press and the media and so on. That, that, to me, the most satanic element of what's happening in our world today is the attack on the truth, you know, the, the attack on the press and so on that we see, uh, because that is, that is very sinister indeed, because when there's no truth and there's no criteria and it's all just what you perceive and who you support, uh, then we do end up in anarchy and moral chaos and eventually violence. So I have no easy answer to your question, but I, I do think that as, as Christians we have a responsibility while we can and where we have the freedom in, a, in our society to do our best to exercise political, um, the givenness of the vote, and also to see political work, i.e. to become a politician or to serve in the government as a valid Christian vocation. Uh, because I think you've got Daniel, you've got Joseph, you've got Esther, you've got plenty, of, and you've got Erastus in the New Testament, the, um, the city mayor of Corinth for a while. We have, we have plenty of biblical support for saying that believers, Jewish and Christian, can be involved in the political process. But it needs to be seen as, as a calling, as a missional calling, uh, which will be costly. Uh, because the whole political arena is so riddled with corruption and venality and all the stuff that goes on. So to be salt and light in that kind of world takes a lot of courage. Um, so I have a great respect for Christians who choose to go into politics and then seek somehow to maintain their integrity. Yeah. Perhaps we should finish there. You got one more? Okay. Is there one more? Okay, over here. Yeah. Yeah. To whatever is coming next, because mm. even when you know when I see stuff people in my church post on Facebook or whatever, a lot of it is lamentation for what's being lost in the Christendom realm. Yeah. All this yeah. And problems. Yeah. What advice? I I I think yeah. At least to be aware of that as a problem as a pastor is probably 90% of the battle. In other words, to be aware of the fact that uh, so many Christians are unaware of the Christendom reality and where it has emerged and in some respects the damage that it did uh, and the battles that then happened with the Reformers and the Anabaptists, you know, all, all the history uh, of, of what that created. And, and to bring them back to the Bible and to say, you know, let me use my earlier thing, which story are you living in? Are we living in the biblical story in which it seems pretty clear that God's people uh, will always function in some senses as aliens and strangers in the world, will always have some element of not being quite at home and therefore a marginalized community, uh, and that when Christians get into power, they are n no less immune than anybody else, or whatever the word is, to the corruption of power and to getting things wrong. They will still make wrong decisions. Uh, so... You know, I, I remember, again, I hope this is not wrong, but I, I remember when I came to America on one of my many visits there, immediately after the um, election of George Bush, um, and my dear evangelical friend says, you know, we've, not, we've got our man in the White House, and he holds prayer meetings in the White House. And I, I'm thinking, well, that's, that's, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm, I don't want to doubt, that, you know, if he's a believer, that's wonderful. Um, but the idea that somehow 
we get our man in the White House, as it were. It's, it's, it's essentially the Christendom mentality. You know, we need to have our Caesar. And the fact that he may be holding prayer meetings, you know, I, I just go back to Amos and I say, yeah, well, God saw all the prayer meetings that were happening in Bethel. Uh, you know, religion was flourishing, uh, but the society was rotten. Um, and so God is not, as it were, so much interested uh, in what happens in the religion in the churches or in the temple. He wants to know what's happening in the gate, uh, in the public arena, and that's where justice must be done. So to help Christians to somehow read their Bibles politically um, in a way which shows some of this discernment, I think pastors can do a bit of a job on that um, to make people um, not be quite so afraid of losing, because, or perhaps... Point them to Pakistan and uh, you know, Egypt and the Middle East and, and um, Indonesia and say, how would you like to be a Christian where Christians have no privileges? You know, there's no Christian government or Christian, and yet the church is there witnessing. So we can learn, so if, if it should happen, that we end up um, legally discriminated against, if it should happen that we end up on the wrong side of political power, which will very likely happen, in many ways is happening, um, will we be able to learn from the churches of the global south who have lived with such realities for centuries and still do as to how they cope uh, with a, a form of Christian faith and Christian allegiance and Christian identity which is a million miles away from Christendom. Um, so we could learn something and that's perhaps one of the things that Langham can do is to help the churches in the West learn from the majority world rather than thinking we've got something to teach them. They've got an awful lot to teach us. Perhaps that's where we should stop. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. It was a great place to end, especially with a reference to Langham, and that's, that's fantastic. I'm really glad we were able to kind of wind up there. That was good.